Avengers, assemble. In the wake of Endgame, some were lost, others regained. They're good. What happens next? Stay tuned, true believers, as we try to find out. Peter Melnick. Graphic designer, comic book enthusiast, and podcast pontificator, and I'm Eddie Wilson. Upstate New York radio announcer in the Sullivan Catskills, with an inordinate amount of catching up in his own comic book universe. Ready? It's time for a new episode of The Marvelists. Welcome, everyone, to The Marvelists, the Marvel Universe podcast. I'm Peter Melnick. And I'm Eddie Wilson. And before we get into the usual rigmarole of today's episode and introducing our special guest co-host and very special guest, we want to tell you all at home how you can get a hold of us on them, our social medias. Are you ready? Aye, aye, Captain. Hit it. First off, go on Facebook at facebook.com slash The Marvelists. Go on Twitter and Instagram at The Marvelists. Give us a follow ski on all of those platforms. You can also find us individually, myself, on Facebook at facebook.com slash Peter Melnick Podcaster. On Twitter and Instagram at Peter Melnick. And there's only one site on social media. Oh, and I'm on TikTok for some reason. Peter Melnick, but better, whatever. Anyway, there is one social media platform that houses Mr. E. Wilson, and that is Instagram at... Eddie9193. I love the way you said your name with that, Eddie. I usually like the way I say my name, too. Thank you. (laughs) My way. Or the highway. Yes, Lint Biscuit. They're rocking the set just like Russian roulette. But don't be upset when you're broken and you're done, because I'm going to be the one to let you out anyway. But I can't believe I remember that so well offhand. Anyway, you can also find us on a wide variety of streaming platforms, including TuneIn Radio, Stitcher Radio, Podbean, SoundCloud, Spotify, you name it. We are there and, again, available for all iOS and Android devices. And also, we are on iTunes where you can rate, review, subscribe, share, ice cream machines, McDonald's, broken, five stars. Give us that. And in addition, we are also on Patreon. Where you go to patreon.com slash The Marvelists. Give us a dollar. Give us two dollars. Give us three dollars. Give us four dollars. Give us five dollars. Give us six dollars. Give us seven dollars. Give us eight dollars. Before that happens, give it a look. <laughs> yes. To see if you want to commit. Exactly. If you are enjoying this program, and we really hope you are, first off, go on Twitter, or, uh, iTunes and Five Star. We like that. But also, show it monetarily that you enjoy what we're doing. Because for as low as, I believe, $3 a month, you join the ability to get early access to our show, as well as a newsletter written by each of us or one of us, depending on the time. You know, we usually do that. I mean, I did the, I think I did the August one. Do you want to do the next one, Eddie? Well, you give me what to, yeah, okay. Yeah, just say, hey, this is Eddie. And then we send it. It's not really much of it, but it gets to your $3 going. You can you can also get for five dollars join the five dollar tier where you're able to listen to us ramble incoherently about the Fantastic Four by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby all 102 plus issues because there are annuals and we're going to be covering those whatever but it is coherent it, well yes because John is there and you are there and you are you I, and I am the Walrus Gugugachu you can also support the show. For as much as $8 a month, but we are only limiting it to two people per tier for this, that $8 tier, because what that gets you is the ability to pick a show topic, and if you don't suck as a person on the show, we bring you on to actually be on the show. Mm -hmm. And 
that is my long meandering bullshittery way of introducing our very special guest co-host returning to the show for the 800th and 87th time mr jacked up jeremy bagley jeremy bagley hey guys just like that uh, rampant case of herpes i'm back once again um, this is a mistake, though. I thought this $8 a month was going to be your OnlyFans account, so I heard don't suck and phone, and I got really confused. <laughs> so you're not in bad company at that. <laughs> I don't know how to respond to that. It's a good group, though. Yes, it is. <laughs> I mean, there are no Alan Parsons Project, which I believe is a type of hovercraft, but I digress. Okay. Now, additionally, on the other, 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 other end of the tin cannon string... We are speaking with a man that I know very well as a collaborator in the world of funny books. He is the man behind a comic uh, that him and I both worked on together called Limelight that you're going to be seeing potentially in an anthology soon or in a very hastily produced ash can. It'll be hastily produced in terms of paper. The quality is in the art, ladies and gentlemen. And the person on the other end of the tin cannon string is... My pal and yours, Mr. Ryan Tavares. Ryan, good evening. Good evening, fellows. Before we get into all of the usual rigmarole of rigmarole, you got a thing coming up on October 1st. It is a Kickstarter, I believe. It is. Yeah, it's for my book, Nomads. Uh, Volume 1, it's 120 pages. It collects the first four issues. And... It is an absolutely gorgeous book to look at, and I've seen some of the early stuff that you've sent me, and I'm on board. I'm going to be uh, throwing down a couple dollars towards the Kickstarter because it's pretty damn dope. Oh, thanks, man. What is sorry? What is the link to the Kickstarter? Oh, the link to the Kickstarter. Uh, you can go to my website tavarsart.com, and I have a, a big section labeled Kickstarter, and it takes you right to the page. Very cool. Now, what is Nomads about? So Nomads takes place in a world that is returned to the primal and tells the story of a character named Hawk, and he's searching for um, his tribe who's gone missing. Um, and it's a world that where mankind has, has fallen and people live in, like, small tribes and have kind of reverted to a more, uh, like, primitive level of living. It's kind of like Mad Max, but instead of clinging to technology, they've returned to nature. Eddie? So a little bit of a spin on a story that we're kind of familiar with. What do you think else, Ryan, makes it kind of uh, unique or stand out without giving too much away? Yeah, so, you know, we, we're all super familiar with post-apocalyptic stories, um, especially given the sort of uh, state of things that we're currently in now. Um, give or take your perspective. And uh, one of the things I really wanted to focus on or something that I, I really felt I, I, I could add was a, a different direction. So focusing more on, uh, more on like the wildlife and the landscape. And rather than driving through like dystopian crumbled cities, we're seeing uh, a future that is uh, millennia into the future. So like it, it Without without humans, there's many niches where like animals have filled, and uh, there's also just vast landscapes, lots of color, lots of action. 
it's not your typical sort of like walking dead um, fight for survival. And one of the things I noticed about your art style when it, you mentioned the color that it's so much different than other things that you might see out there. That was the very first thing that I noticed, how bright and vibrant the colors are. And it's... I know when we did our interview with uh, Bill Manspeaker of the band Green Jello, he mentioned, you know, his album Serial Killers and utilizing those bright neon kind of colors. And I feel going with that, especially in a comic like this, is a very bold decision and it makes it stand out compared to everything else going on the market. Well, it, I mean, and part of that is where I'm drawing influence from. So um, I'm a huge fan of, like, Jack Kirby. Reading a lot of Jack Kirby and a lot of, a lot of those colors, really bright psychedelic colors. A lot of comics that deal with subject matter, they tend to be, like, earthy, muddy, muted tones. And so I wanted to kind of bring some of those bright, vibrant colors from those Kirby-era comics to um, this to this post-apocalyptic world. And it, for some reason, when I when I look at the stuff that you're doing with this, it reminds me of, like, Dayglow posters to, you know, an extent. You know what I mean? And there's just something about that. Like, we, you know, right now, we are seeing, like, uh, Jim Rugg doing uh, October on in 1976, the world's first ever blacklight comic, get it on Kickstarter, yada, yada, yada. And one of the things with that is, again, it makes it stand out for what that is. And obviously, you're not using Dayglow kind of colors or blacklight kind of colors. But what this is, is just something that it definitely catches the eye of a potential reader. Yeah, and, and hopefully it's, uh, it, it provides some sort of energy to the reading as well. And you're also men- you mentioned about the, uh, you know, just Kirby influence with that with colors. That's what, you know, I get a real kick out of seeing DC, the distinguished competition. They're re-releasing all of uh, Jack's work. And you look at the book jackets, you look at, you know, the dust covers of all that stuff, and they go with those kind of colors. They are absolutely gorgeous to look at. You have the great curvy work on the inside, but damn, they do a good job on the outside, too. Mm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And actually, that's that's something else that... That's what I've been reading lately. There's a lot of those releases and just really trying to see like how they use color uh, to complement the artwork. Did you, uh, did you see recently the, uh, have they shown what the uh, forever people uh, trade is going to look like yet? Cause I'm kind of curious to see what colors are going for, for that. I'm not sure, but I mean, if it's anything like they did with the uh, demon or, um, or uh, what's the other one? Fourth World. Well, if it's anything like you've been doing, it's it's probably going to be pretty cool. I have the uh, Commandi uh, Omnibus, and that thing, not just being a mammoth book to have, but it's it's got like this baby blue kind of color, bright neon green, and it makes it stand out on my bookshelf, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they're sweet. I, I'm really happy that they're kind of leaning into that. I mean, for a while there... And still currently, they still do releases where they recolor the artwork and try to make it look more modern, and it just kind of flattens it out, it kind of ruins it. Which is funny, because a lot of the colors that are in those originals are flat, but they're just super vibrant and saturated. See, I adore his work, but it drives me crazy when I see Neil Adams using modern-day coloring on his own work, and especially his older stuff, which... 
I get that, you know, you want to reinvent how it looks, but there's something about seeing those flat colors utilized in that format with his art style, especially I don't want to see modern coloring on his original X-Men run. That's just me. A side note on the coloring and the re reworking stuff. Peter and I went to the Marvel offices last summer of 2019. And if memory serves, I think we met one of the staff who was, I think on a, on a recoloring project. And I forget what title it was for, but does that ring a bell at all, Peter? I know I remember seeing them scanning stuff for Marvel Unlimited. That was really about it. Is that what it? Okay. Might have been. But it, it's kind of funny because there's so much that you can do in the process of comic creation. And color is one of the most important things. And you can also get a lot done in the black and white format. And again, go you know, tying back over to what you know Ryan and I have done, we did a black and white story. I wanted to do more because I like that old school feel to it, you know, like the 1980s kind of outlaw feel to it. And there's also something about incorporating shading. It makes it give it gives it more of a sense of a noir kind of feel to it, you know? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the cool thing, about, at least for me, about working with comics, because I I'm kind of a one man show. So I spend a lot of time teaching myself every step of the process. Some artists. They'll buckle down. They'll focus on the aspect. You know, you have some guys who they just get really good at pencils. Others, they're really good at inking and so on. And um, for me, it's it's fun to try to mix and match those different um, roles myself and see how that changes the story. So for Nomad, in terms of black and white, uh, a lot of my things, I, I choose to go with a brush instead of, uh, technical pens or rapidographs that have, you know, those generally have a cleaner line, but with a brush, I can do things that add texture to it. And it kind of fits with the world of nomads, which is kind of like this almost Conan-esque barbaric. And using those thick brush strokes, you can get a lot of different, uh, you can get a totally different feeling out of it. Jeremy? Uh, I don't draw anything. <laughs> <laughs> Except a crowd. And a conclusion. Uh, Ryan, what I like about uh, some of your work that I've seen so far, uh, Peter's been kind enough to send me over some sneak previews of the stuff that you guys are working on. Uh, in addition to being a great artist, one of the things that you do that I really like is, um, especially in the comic vein, is to be able to tell a story with pictures that aren't in the word bubbles. And I think you've got a great attention to detail, and I was just wondering if that was something that is a natural talent of yours or if there's been some other artists. You mentioned Jack Kirby. Um, are there other artists that you draw inspiration from? Because I think you do a really good job, again, like I said, of telling the story of what's going on outside the word bubbles with what you draw. Your, your attention to detail and the little kind of Easter eggs that you put inside of, of your art is, is really quite amazing. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, so there's a, a bunch of different influences, but specifically for like character acting and, and emoting and stuff, a lot of them, they were breaking ground, but they also like, they were masters of what they were doing. Um, and I often, I, I think about like how Will Eisner also blended and meshed text with art and, um, and, and how those two go hand in hand. And that's, that's also part of the reason why I, I want to do the lettering and the drawing. You're collaborating, um, and 
say there's not a lot of communication between the letterer and the artist, um, those word bubbles could show up in, in areas where you might have put a lot of detail. I think about um, Dave Gibbons on Watchmen, who, like, he absolutely wanted to do the, the lettering on that book because he had a specific idea for where he wanted that text to go and how he wanted it to look. Um, so that was, I'm trying to think about, like, how those two things interact and not just the separate roles. And I think that. It's very difficult to get that unless you've been working with someone for a long time. That's why you'll see sometimes teams of artists that stay together for a long time. Great. Uh, just a real quick follow-up, too. Um, how was your back doing having to carry Peter Melnick all this time? <laughs> <laughs> I deserve that. Well, Peter, Peter's actually a really good writer, so it really wasn't that difficult. And one of the things that, you know, in regards to the relationship you and I have with this, and I was surprised, you know, when you told me this, but like when I write, I I'm always in, like I I'm astonished that I can see this stuff, my stuff come to life, and you in turn ended up throwing in like little details, like things that I never would have expected. Like my personal favorite one comes right from the first page, like right off the jump. You have like a little uh, quarter with, uh, what's his name? Uh, George Washington, easy for me to remember. And he's doing like, you know, the little uh, Dio horns. I'm like, oh, that's cool. And <laughs> it's, again, little details, things that I never would have, you know, said, hey, you should throw that in there. I'm like, I wouldn't think of that. And then I'm seeing that. I'm like, yo, this is pretty cool. So there's that element of, I just said, screw it, man. You have freedom. You do whatever you want to do. And I've heard like from, you know, various artists, like, that's very rare when the the writer will be like, "Yeah, I don't care. You do you. I'm 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 paying because I like your stuff. So you you be creative. You do as much as you want to do." And yes, so it that that was actually that, that's my favorite kind of collaboration is being able to bounce ideas off of each other and like add flair. And unfortunately, sometimes what happens when people are making stuff is we you know we have our creative ego and. Some people, they want to have control over that story. You know, they have a very specific directorial eye. And so they want it exactly how it is in the script. But if you think about, like, um, I'm going to go back to, to like, Watchmen and Adam Moore and, and the various artists that he works with, it's still right to his, you know, the various artists that he works with, their strengths or their interests and, like, what they like to do. Um but as a freelancer, I'm kind of used to both. So I've worked with some people who are very specific, and that's okay. Like, generally, what a way that it starts is I'll slip a little bit of something in. And, you know, if that writer likes or doesn't like it, then I know, okay, like, I, I need to step back a little bit and just kind of focus on what exactly they're trying to say. Um, but it, I find that the best work is often when uh, you have – a synergy between the, the writer and the artist. Like when you, when you both can work together really well. And I, that's the one thing that I do miss from working on Nomad by myself is uh, sometimes, and you know, I a writer who I brought in for that project. And uh, his name's Stephen Kerbitz. He's someone who I've worked with for going on 10 years now. And so what's cool about that, again, is like, he, him and I share uh, similar interests and similar movies and comics that we read and stuff. And so it, it's a lot of fun for us to kind of be able to bounce ideas back and forth. 
And I, I think that that's something that like every collaboration needs. Going back to the nomads, Ryan, uh, you said post-apocalyptic, futuristic setting. And I think not having watched too, too many of those and trying to remember what, if you could or need to, or don't have to give it a time frame. Do you have a setting? Does it say anywhere in Nomads, you know, the year or the century is anything like that? And you, like I said, you might not even need to do that. So, um, so for Nomads, there's ways way that it is uh, placed in, in time is it's you know it's a thousand potentially two thousand years in the future, um, and a lot of the remnants of our era are gone. We've just been melted away by time. And you, right now, currently in the story, there's not a lot of evidence of uh, the humans that came before, but the one thing that there is, is there is a, this, an uh, oral tradition, so stories that are passed down. And the main character is actually one of those people who has committed those stories to memory. And there's a scene in the book where Hawk, the main character, he's describing the what happened in the past to another character, but it's, it's so far in the future, they don't have any visual reference. Mm-hmm. It's told through symbols, through things that, that they might understand. So they're speaking about gods and, and magic, but really what they're talking about is, uh, you know, AI and weapons. Yeah, and I think it so works almost, without even saying, you know, what if you give a generalized time, it's thousands of years in the future, then that works. Sure. Yeah, I, I, th- I think it's it's one of those things where we're it, we're telling us where a lot of this stuff is kind of abstract. And a, and a yeah. side note, yeah, um, to add on to that, when I think of something in the future, what they they that is the movie makers had done, two things come to mind. One is the Planet of the Apes movies, where I think the time oh, yeah. capsule said it was the year 3,000-something or other. I love you, Dr. Zayas. <laughs> but you're so damned ugly. I'd kiss you, yeah. And then the and another one in that uh, c- uh, cycle of five films has it being the year 1991, which, of course, when you're making the movie in you know 1969 or so... They did not plan that out all the way, did they? Somewhat. And then the other one is uh, Escape from New York, where they say it's the year 1997. I've been wanting to rewatch that lately. Okay. Yeah, that's a really funny that you mentioned that. Call me Snake. Or even Acura, which takes place in 2019. Ah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Boy, they got that one wrong, too, didn't they? <laughs> <laughs> that was not good for life. <laughs> Oof. All right, now... Obviously, we are all joined because we are here for a wedding. No, um, we are joined all here because we all love comics. You know, that's the most important thing of all this. And, of course, we're all reading different things. Like, uh, if, if you're listening to us on Patreon, in our one of our most recent newsletters, I mentioned, hey, I've been going on a big Frank Miller Daredevil kick. And as of right now, I'm currently reading the uh, Daredevil, well, technically Daredevil, Electra Assassin by Frank Miller and Bill Sienkiewicz. And I got to tell you guys, like that is one of those series that is absolutely batshit crazy, and I love it for it. That was my way of a segue, by the way, guys. That was good. <laughs> and you. then, and narrator, segue ended. So I can pick that up maybe if you like. Well, did you read it, Eddie? No. 
No, I thought it was like a round robin of what are you reading now? Ryan, did you read it? <laughs> oh, uh, oh, me? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh. did, did you did you read Electra Assassin? This is like a lame book club right now. No, it's in my it's in my pile. It's my list. It's well, we, I we know that Ed. owned but didn't read. That's yeah. Surprise, surprise. Enormous. Mm-hmm. Ed enormous. Mm. Anyway, Ryan. Yeah, well, speaking of ninjas and Frank Miller, one thing that I have read recently was the Frank Miller and Claremont run on Wolverine. Oh, that's such um, a good run. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, just just looking back at at it, he's still in that kind of more traditional comic book, but still showing like those very dynamic poses and and that that's kind of again that's kind of like what I look for and what I try to draw from when working on my own stuff. And it's funny because, uh, you know, with everything going on with uh, his early work with Miller, I've been trying to track down, like, as much of his Daredevil stuff as humanly possible. I'm actually only down to uh, a first print edition of uh, Love and War and number 170, which is uh, the first time Daredevil meets up with Kingpin. But one of the ones I just got in the mail the other day was the first time that he, uh, Daredevil was drawn by Frank, and that was in Spectacular Spider-Man number 27. And that era of Frank Miller is so interesting to see because he's still experimenting, he's still trying to do his own thing, and I, I want to say, when was, uh, when was Wolverine? That was 1982, right? Mm, you know what? Off the top of my head, I have no idea. I'm the worst with dates. Jeremy? I uh, wasn't alive then. <laughs> That's a good way to uh, no. a good one. Um, you know, I'm one of those snobs who, you know, and I know you get this on the internet all the time, but I watch the movie first, and then I like to spoil the books for people. <laughs> so, you know, Frank Miller's got this great reputation and all that, but I'll be honest with you, it can't hold a candle to the Jennifer Gardner movie, and <laughs> you stopped that. I just, I just lost interest. <laughs> You horse's ass. <laughs> I think it just threw up a little. Oof. The funniest thing is I've never seen that, but I will I will state for the record something, and this is going to be for a potential uh, episode for the future when we eventually do get to it. Daredevil 2003 is honestly what got me into Daredevil, and I watched it fairly recently. I actually had to shut it off, not because of the quality of the movie, but because... It got me really sad because I'm looking at him like, I miss going to New York City. I really miss going to New York City. And I was watching the movie. I'm like, this is still really good. And I can't believe I enjoy, you know, gigantic chin Ben Affleck. But I like this movie a lot to the point where uh, I might be in possession of a Marvel Legends Daredevil with Ben Affleck now. And yeah, that's really sad to admit out loud. But here we are. Yeah. Yeah. There we definitely are. Everyone left. <laughs> Can we insert crickets here? Oh, John will have a field day with that one. I know that. And John, if you could, please incorporate uh, Evanescence's Bring Me to Life. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, that was also the era of the uh, superheroes in leather. That was the era of superhero movies with butt rock music. And I was just watching a Birth Movies Deaths uh, documentary. It's like, I think, uh, 10 minutes long, Spider-Man in film. And it features a friend of the show, Donald Glute. And that's actually how I discovered his early uh, version of Spider-Man. 
So in there, they talk about, and of course, Spider-Man 2002 birthed a song we all know and love, Here, and then it cuts off immediately. But <laughs> again, I will Did you admit, guys uh, in your cinematic journey ever watch Daredevil for a review? Nope, we did not. And that's going to be uh, a future, as the boys on We Hit Movies say, a stay tuned because I really want to revisit that one. Like that one was one of my favorites, and I never actually saw the uh, director's cut featuring Coolio as a whole subplot. But I liked it when originally when I first saw it, and to be completely honest, uh, what's his name? Um, Michael Clark Duncan is a damn good uh, kingpin. Mm -hmm. Just like ominous, and holy shit, he could probably F you up. Ain't no probably about that. Well, not now, obviously. But (sighs) too soon? Too soon, Right, so that's interesting that that actually brought you to the comics because I, I don't know how much of a retention rate there is between the, the Marvel movies and superhero movies and comic book readers. Well, it's funny because like so many people I know that are fans of uh, The Punisher, for example, they always cite that 2004 movie as a favorite thing. And I'm like, that movie kind of sucked. Like I loved it on my initial viewing back in the day, but then I watched it later, years and years later. I'm like, why is he in Miami? Oh, cool. We have uh, John Travolta running around in his toupee, and he's, oh, oh, he's blowing shit up. Oh, cool. Oh, well, this movie sucked. Oh, Peter, it didn't even rate Miami. That was Tampa. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't get, they didn't get, they didn't get the. He's in Southern state. Florida. That was, that was middle, that was middle Florida. That's a shame. <laughs> that was, uh, that was two hours away from being the Punisher in Palaka. So oddly specific that you know that town offhand. <laughs> Uh, but I digress. Now, one of the things about a lot of that stuff, too, I, I, there's just something about that era of the comic book movies, too, where I feel like they tried their best, and for the most part, like, a lot of those movies are highly looked on upon by a lot of fans. Like, the, you know, the the Fox oh, X-Men nostalgia. movies. That's nostalgia. But the thing is, I was thinking about it. I had a conversation with a friend of mine like a couple of years ago. He goes on saying, oh, yeah, the uh, Fox X-Men movies are all terrible. I'm like, there's like three that are bad, and there's like 17 that they made. So, you know, well. I mean, I, I, I won't lie. I mean, I, I thought they were pretty mind-blowing. Yeah. Because that was like just the rise of being able to see those characters in life in a not totally kind of like cheesy way because – you know, there there were superhero movies prior, but they just weren't taken to that level yet. Mm-hmm. But it's still a halfway point between, like, you know, kind of the, the, the cheesier style films and the the more serious, like, Dark Knight. I feel like w- once we got Dark Knight, we had a real shift or a turning point in the seriousness and tone that they took these movies. And almost like the movies reflect kind of... Uh, the same sort of tones and arcs in like the different eras of comics. That's true, especially because again, you look at how they were done in like the 1980s, for example. And as much as I love it, Dolph Lundgren Punisher is not that serious of a movie. It's it's straight up 1980s, you know, VHS rental of the weekend cheese. You know, mm-hmm. and again, that would be like the equivalent of let's say a Charlton comic from like the 1960s or 1970s, you know, like it's certainly a comic book. It's certainly got word bubbles in it, but no, 
Yeah, not quite there yet. But And then we kind of, like you said, you know, the early aughts, it was all leather, butt rock, and it almost kind of, uh, it kind of mimics some of the, the what I feel like the 90s comics, you know, that, that edgy, but still kind of corny um, um, tone to them. I hate, you know, as much as I hate to say it as an example, but this, the Raimi Spider-Man movies, they are the absolute definition of that. And they're also a product of a guy who loves that era of 1960s cheesiness to them, where it's like, you know, super exposition, super this, super that. And as again, during a birth, death movies, uh, analysis of those movies, the only universe where a cell phone has a uh, dial tone. Dial tone. <laughs> like it, somebody hangs up on Harry and you just hear, hello. As he's talking into one of those motor, uh, Nokia phones that you could like, you know, <laughs> Hit with a sledgehammer. Nokia still brick phone. Oh hell yeah, those things ruled. <laughs> would I be? Would oh, I use one now? Problem. No. <laughs> I think everything we're talking sure about is just a matter of perspective and time. And you know, if you're old enough to have lived through, you know, Matt Salinger and Ronnie Cox and Ned Beatty in Captain America from 1990, then Daredevil with you know. Um, Matt Damon's big friend isn't so bad, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah, I, I don't know how I, you like them apples? I do. I think Apple that's sauce, a good bitch. way to put that. <laughs> because it was for its time, I think it did it did well. It was yeah. uh, you got to look at it as being a bridge to what was to come to the River Kwai. <laughs> wow, I was going to go Rainbow, but okay, or perhaps you know Asgardian. But my thing about a lot of those movies, though, is. There is that level of cheese. There is that, like, certain ones you just have to look at from an analytical point where you're just like, well, they just did not do that very well in terms of the writing. And there are ones where you look at them and you're like, holy shit, they knocked it out of the park. Like, X-Men 2 is still considered to be one of the greatest comic book movies of all time. And to be honest, there's no arguing about that. It's a solid film. It still holds up. It does a great job of adapting God Loves, Man Kills, which... Marvel just did a uh, reissue of a quote-unquote director's cut, which I always find funny to hear. Mm. Oh, it's a director's cut. Where's the director? I don't know. But <laughs> they they do stuff like that, and it's it's kind of cool to see that they there is that love and attention towards the source material. Sometimes you'll end up getting stuff where, as we you know mentioned in this, the leather suits, but for the most part, they do a good job of kind of showing attention towards the source material. But then you look at a movie. Well, like, it's kind of it's kind of that rise of them understanding what a boon the IP is, right? Like how much material you get out of comics. It's almost like they didn't take it seriously enough, and so a lot of those movies, like the ones you say where you watch them and you're like, "Wow, they didn't do a good job." It it's because they're filled with like studio compromise. Oh yeah. It's almost like there were people who were behind the scenes who were pulling directly from the source material. But then you have, you know, the studio who's invested in this, who has, you know, a, a totally different perspective on comics as a whole. But there's a sudden shift, and all of a sudden they're 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 clawing and pulling and buying every single property they buy because they realize that there's, you know, 60 years of research and development on these characters and lore that they can pull from. Well, look at uh... and it's. Well, look at it with Liefeld, like how he was supposed to have his young blood stories and his whole ex uh, awesome studios or extreme studios. 
everything was going to become a Netflix property. And then eventually that, you know, deal fell off the table and didn't happen. But there's so much that's coming around the bend and or is whatever the expression is. I always mess these things up. Eddie, what's the expression? What, coming up around the corner, around the bend? It's the same difference. Good enough. But one of the things. On the horizon? Ooh, I like that. It's a zero dawn. Eddie didn't get that reference. It's a video game joke. Anyway. That's exactly why. On to the next thing. But when it comes to like taking all these properties and building upon them, you know, the one show that's a big hit right now is Cobra Kai, but also The Boys. I just wanted to reference Cobra Kai because I've been watching that a lot, (laughs) just like everyone else. But I digress. Anyway, with that, you have The Boys and it's, it's a show that manages to take... The source material, which was pretty okay by Garth Ennis. I'm a big Garth Ennis guy. The Boys is not my favorite thing by him. But they took something of his, built upon it, and made it even better. And Jeremy, you had mentioned to me that you're watching the show and absolutely enjoying it. Oh, yeah, I love it. Um, I also love how angry the internet gets that it only comes out once a week, um, which is fun. It shows you where we've shifted in dynamics. I'm just going to go back and hit reverse real quick. Um, and talk about that kind of uh, transition into when we all kind of maybe think that comic book fans and movie fans kind of thought, all right, this is all good. You know, you're talking about the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, Ryan touched on it a little bit before with buying IP. And I think what really kind of tied the bow on all that stuff together is when you started seeing crossover. So Stan Lee and everybody at Marvel used to just say, we need to option this stuff because we need to make money. Mm -hmm. So... You had a bunch of Hollywood folks making movies about source material that they were getting consulted on. But now if you look at TV shows and movies, you can look at the front page of a comic book and see a lot of the names uh, in the credits of movies. And they're not at the end with a special thanks. They're at the beginning with, you know, producing. And I think that once the people that started doing those things and the crossover was there and the collaboration, you know, uh, I think Kevin Feige did a really great job. The, uh, maybe the best thing he's done as quarterbacking the MCU is the collaboration between really great directors and writers who know how to make really good movies and combining that with partnering them with people who know the material. And I'm not just talking about Stanley. I'm talking about the people who maybe if they didn't even create the major characters, still quarterback those stories through till now. And I think that's where these things started. The, the, the line of demarcation really started to fade between, you know, what is a produced Hollywood film and what is a piece of marble publishing. And that's why they're kind of a lot better now. And that's, and that's kind of just one of the strengths of comics in general is just the crossover and the shared universe and I think it's probably one of the better things that came from, from the introduction of comics into movies was this idea that these properties don't have to exist in separate worlds. And it just exploded to the point where even like uh, Universal was trying to make a, a monster movie universe. Well, how'd that work really out? out too well. <laughs> they had to run home <laughs> so and cry to their my mommy. Point, though, is that these comics bring something unique that is not necessarily inherent in movies themselves. Absolutely. And uh, not to shit all over Peter's segue about uh, the boys, but you're right. Uh, I think that there's a case, too, of taking something that was a property that's, again, not necessarily mainstream. But the premise kind of takes 
the notion of superhero fatigue a little bit and kind of flips it, you know. So we might be at this juncture. I, who knows? These movies still keep making billions and billions of dollars. But we are eventually going to come to this law of diminishing returns where people are tired of seeing comic book movies. And I think one of the reasons that The Boys has been successful, not just because we're in a pandemic and people need something to watch, is because it flips that dynamic over and really puts the most of the focus on people dealing with the fallout of what superheroes might actually be more like in the real world. And that's kind of heavily commercialized, um, heavily um, ghost-written on their social media, uh, just really kind of a whitewashed um, product as opposed to necessarily somebody who's doing good because they have the ability to do good. And so that's what I really like about that show is, you know, besides all the the graphic, you know, violence and strong sexual content that I enjoy as a family man. But, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, also the, the underlying message that, you know, in the real world, this, these characters and, and the, the powers that come along with them probably would lean a little bit more uh, as, a, as a property, you know, and as, a, as a, a publicly traded stock as opposed to, you know, somebody who does something good just because gosh darn it, it's the right thing to do. And one of the other things that I was doing a lot of thinking about this week is in regards to the upcoming film slate of everything, as of this recording on uh, September 29th, we are now going to see everything in the Marvel Cinematic Universe film slate delayed again. Black Widow is going to be a uh, May release. Mm -hmm. uh, What's the one after that? They... it was gonna be. I think it's. Is it Shang Chi? I was gonna. I was and the Legend of the Ten Rings. I believe that that's gonna be a summer release, and then not Eternals. Eternals is a November release. Which, by the way, somebody had pointed this out. The reason they're heavily pushing that movie for that month release is because it's Kevin Feige's big epic. He wants this to be in fresh in the uh, Academy's mind for Oscar season hmm. because the Academy loves big gigantic epics which makes sense but we don't know what's going to happen and i've been doing a lot of thinking about this are these things actually going to come out will theaters be a thing in may i don't know because as everyone knows you know we're still in a pandemic and shit sucks but one of the things about that is I don't see movie theaters being open in New York State for a very long time. And New York State, for example, is one of the big beds for theater goers. We're one of the we're one of the states that makes up the mass of the United States for, you know, going to the movies. And since we're not allowed to do it due to Papa Cuomo, guess what? We can't show the movies. Kind of sucks for us, but you know, whatever. I'd rather people be safe than going to see a comic book movie, but that's just me. And in regard, I, oh, go ahead. Oh uh, yeah, I was going to say, I, I, it's it's kind of wild to me that they haven't out a hybrid, you know, for releasing movies yet. <laughs> of course, the circumstances uh, are are impacting that, but like we've seen, what was it like? Souls Two was like the largest grossing. Uh, digital release ever um you even had you know even though it didn't do too well you had mulan where people were shelling out 30 dollars just to see it on uh disney plus rather than going to the movies 
I, I think that, that you could do, you know, a hybrid release, and, uh, you know, depending on your area. But I, I don't know that that will necessarily make up for, you know, the scenario you're talking about with, like, full movie theaters or anything like that, because even if you can go to the movie theaters, it seems like a lot of places are reduced capacity. Yeah, you know, reduced capacity. I know a friend of mine, he had gone all the way to Connecticut to go see New Mutants, which is like, wow. Like, I like the movie. I thought it was a fine movie, but I'm not going to go travel to another state to watch a movie for two hours. But, well, sorry, an hour and 39 minutes. But, I don't know. I just feel like the idea of going to see it in a theater is a bit much right now, you know? And in addition to all of this, I feel like Everything is, that's been going on really has messed with the film schedule in the sense of we're getting WandaVision in, I believe, December on Disney+. Plus. It's going to be a six or seven episode series. And, you know, they've shown the trailers, they've shown the previews. I'm on board. I think it's kind of cool to see it. Although some people out there are mad in regards to the utilization of the comic-accurate costumes of Vision and Wanda as they're going to be Halloween costumes, and they're very, you know, uh, crappy looking. But here's here's the thing about that. Unless you really have a well-designed costume, like really, really well-designed, they're going to look like crap if they're designed in person. Like, my go-to one eternally will always be Suicide Squad featuring Jared Hunka Hunkaletto and the scene where you see the real-life Harley Quinn costume, you know, the... Uh, the black and red, the this and that. Like, she looks like a Harlequin. Hence the name. Oh, I get it. But one of the things about that is it makes it look cheesy. It makes it look not that good. That's why sometimes you need these character reinventions. That's just, again, that's just my opinion. But someone's, some costumes, there we go, easy for me to say, Mm -mm. that could work in, you know, an on-screen version would be Hugh Jackman's Wolverine in the red, or in the red and yellow. Yes, he's Hulk Hogan now, brother. Uh, the yellow and black and blue. But then they go on saying, "Oh no, it doesn't. Oh, it's lame. Look at it." Yeah, I think I think that's again that's this like push pull between you know do we lean in more realistic or do we, we lean into the cheese? I mean, it really. I think that you if you did a movie where they had the original costumes. I, I could see it working almost like uh, Alex Frost. You know what I'm saying? There's some instances in which, um, depending on how the movie itself is shot and how it looks, would look really cool. Um, kind of like the flashbacks uh, and Wasp from Ant-Man. Uh, I thought a lot of that stuff was kind of cool. But then you have characters like Captain America, who looks he looks awesome, even though he's in like this, it's almost like rubber armor, kind of what it looks like. And I kind of feel like even Daredevil, the Netflix series Daredevil, really hit a good in-between. I think that there's a balance. I don't think you have to go full-on Harlequin, but I think that they should do a better job of trying to kind of honor, you know, where those costumes came from. Yeah, you end up taking it and, like, building upon it, like, you know, doing some new stuff towards it, but still retaining the original look of it. And I, think, I mean, they nailed Doctor Strange. Of- and, I mean, that's one character where you can get away with that because it's his cape is literally sentient. One of the, one of the things you just mentioned, Doctor Strange, is I love how in uh, Thor Ragnarok when he shows up, he has the yellow gloves, and they they shouldn't look so cool, but damn, they look cool. 
And and again, that's that's an example. The setting matches the costume. Like Ragnarok was very psychedelic, very like leaning into that Kirby esque sort of, you know, you know, colorful worlds. And I think you can pull it off then. But if, if you try to do that in a movie that's grounded like Dark Knight, it would look ridiculous. Yeah. And it's funny too. Uh, Jeremy had a thought, but before we get to Jeremy's thought, one thing I was going to throw out there is when you see Wanda in the. Uh, the Halloween costume of her old school costume. I've always hated the Wanda uh, Scarlet Witch costume. It's one of the worst looking costumes. It's up there with the original version or the uh, white, yellow and red version of the Falcon. Like that's that one's just the living shits. But I digress. Uh, But with Wanda, you look at her and she's got that uh, thing on her head. She looks like a cat getting its face shoved through a loaf of bread. Uh, It looks a little restricting. Yes. Yes, Okay. Now, Jeremy. Yeah, I think all these things just kind of uh, pertain to, like we talked about before, time and um, and venue, too. You know, I just not to hit too much of a rewind, but to go back to our discussion about when we're going to see movies or when we're going to see these major tent poles and theaters, I think the studios are going to hold out for it. I think that the numbers that you've seen from these, you know what does really well for a $30 to $50 to $60 on demand is live events. People are willing to get a group of their friends or as many people as you can socially distance with and, and do a, a wrestling pay-per-view. AEW is not the WWE, but their pay-per-views do good numbers. Um, live events are doing, you know, uh, UFC pay-per-views are doing really good numbers, even some cases beyond what they were doing before. You're not going to see that with movies because I don't think on an individual basis people think of $50 or even $30 as a good value for a movie when you can wait XYZ amount of months and see it again for 20 bucks. You know, So I think that instead of losing out on these tent poles, they'll keep it on a shelf and release it when they know it's going to make a billion dollars rather than lose the money and and put it out on on demand because i just don't think right now people want to see movies in a movie theater and they want to see big giant blockbusters at a theater first before they watch it at home it's just the way society has been programmed at some point that will change maybe but i don't think it is right now and it's the same way with these costumes uh you're talking about a small niche of people that understand what the original costumes look like and if they look cheesy and you're just starting to get interested in it you know if you went with the original captain america costume as opposed to the one that they went with i think it would almost be a turnoff to people who now are marvel fans but who weren't before 2008 or 9 and so i think Mm -hmm. that when you build these things and you're you're making these movies to the the least you know the, the biggest common denominator as opposed to just being a fan service um, which they do do. I think every one of those little scenes where you've seen a, 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 a callback to the original costumes is a fan service. But I don't necessarily think that if you saw that on the front of a poster someplace that you'd be like, man, I really want to watch that as part of a mainstream audience. Comic book fans would love it, but as we all know, we're a really true, been doing this for XYZ, you know, more than 10 or 20 years. Comic book fans aren't a ton of a pop of people. And they're not going to sell $2 billion worth of movie tickets. And, you know, there's there's just something about the idea of how these movies are coming about with... I, I 
I just don't see movie theaters being at full capacity or even being in New York State, for example, in May. Like, I don't see the movie hitting its May release date. You know, because also you have to factor in a vaccine for this epidemic, this pandemic, has not come out yet. We don't know if it's going to come out. It might come out during the summertime. might come out during July. We don't know. But that's neither here nor there. Or anywhere. Hmm. Eddie? <laughs> yes. Thank you. Well, where else do we need to go with this? What else we're, we're up to collectively, individually, and that kind of thing? Um, in my vast world of trying to catch up with stuff, and because of the fact that we were getting a number of weeks and episodes ago, Immortal Hulk writer Al Ewing, I've kept up to date on that run. So thank goodness for something going on that's current. I'm also trying to catch up on the current new Mutants run. and well, actually, how's, that, how's that going with all those uh, infographs? Yeah, it's, it's, I'm only a couple in, actually, so it's at the beginning stages, and we'll see how far that, that takes me. But what um, made a little bit of progress with, and um, spoiler alert, I think we're trying to see about getting a return regarding uh, X-Men, the animated series, something in the near future, we hope. We can't say anything, Eddie. Keep, but I did make kayfabe. I did make it through, get through, not that it was a drudgery, but it's always the time thing, the first, uh, the first DVD volume of the animated series. Personally, I want to give a big thank you to uh, Abrams Books for the hookup in regards to the upcoming art book for X-Men, the animated series, the art and making of the animated series. It is a beast of a book, no pun intended. And yeah. yes, we are going to be having an episode in the very near future that we conducted with George Booza, the voice of Beast. But the book, I think, is out mid-October. book is out on October 13th. 13th. In all bookstores and funny bookshops. And, you know, it's funny because you look at the you look at the impact of that series and it's still something that people resonate with to this day. They still love the X-Men animated series. And like that was how so many of us were introduced to the characters. That was how I was introduced to the characters. And Ryan, uh, you're you're actually, uh, I think, uh, you're younger than I am. And I'm imagining that was how you were introduced as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that was time time for me between the X-Men animated series, Spider-Man animated series, and uh, Wolverine, or not Wolverine, uh, Batman, and then Iron Man. Those four cartoons were just my bread and butter, man. I've never heard it. somebody use Iron Man as an example of one of the ones that got them in. That's an interesting <laughs> one. Because he's got oh, that sweet man, mullet, too. <laughs> he's got yeah, that. Yeah, well, I mean, it was really into, like, robots and all of that. So you were, you were probably into stuff like Power Rangers as well, right? Oh, yeah, a little bit of that. Yep. I'm going to name Definitely. a series. I, I mean, I aged out of that pretty quickly, but... I will name a series from yeah, 1994 that I want to see if you remember. Superhuman Samurai Cyber Squad. That doesn't ring a bell. Damn, it's a good series, too. It's, <laughs> it's one of the ultra, it's, it was one of the times they brought Ultraman to America, and now Ultraman is a part of the Marvel Universe, technically. Written by uh, Kyle Higgins, and that's a solid recommend from me, by the way. Excellent book. Highly, highly, highly recommend checking out. Definitely. I mean, I, I love Ultraman, Godzilla. I mean, still do. Uh, a lot of those, a lot of those, like, older kaiju films and flicks. But, like, it, especially when I was a kid, didn't really have any idea what it even was. It would just be stuff that they would just air randomly, and you'd see it, and, like, it was cool, and then it'd be gone. Unlike that X-Men cartoon. <laughs> now, in regards to a lot of this stuff, you know, guys, what do you think is going to be 
the next big thing in terms of pop culture with the quarantine going on, in terms of, you know, Marvel or DC or comics in general? Pick me. Eddie. I got Eddie. a hand. There's a hand up over here. I, I just saw it in print, and I'm guessing their track record has been pretty damn good as far as non-movie stuff, and that is TV and the CW with, on October 6th, Swamp Thing. Oh, but that series got canceled, Eddie. They're Did it? No, don't tell me that. It got canceled like within like the production of the first week. Probably the probably this day after I saw it. Jeez. Well, it did get canceled. Spoiler Eddie. alert! Enjoy those eight episodes because you ain't getting no more. Oof! Biggest oof. <laughs> Eddie, go to the back of the class. That's, <laughs> never made it further. <laughs> and I, that I, is that is one like that's one thing that I wish they would do more of though is more um, genre. Uh, genre superhero films. So if you did like a Swamp Thing movie or series, I think that could that could work really well. Similar to how they did like the Old Man Logan kind of Western uh, style flick. And I wish they would lean more into some of that stuff. I absolutely. I mean, we can all be connected, but I, I, I still feel like it, if they, they put a little bit more flavor into it, you could make something like a Swamp Thing work. Would they use Old Bay seasoning? <laughs> <laughs> Hey, Old Bay is delicious, guys. You gotta admit that. I like the sunflower seeds that came out by, uh, I think it's Biggs. But I digress. Isn't that what they call, like, the original Transformers movie? Old Bay? Woo! That, that gets a golf clap, sir. Holy shit. <laughs> but one of the things that, you know, I'm thinking is gonna be the next big thing is Miles Morales stuff because we got that Miles Morales game coming out for the PlayStation 5. It's going to be also available on PS4, but they subtly told us that one. Didn't like really want us to know that, even though Sony was going on saying, hey guys, we're going to release uh, this just for PS5, so buy your PS5, also PS4. But, yeah, I think I think Miles stuff is going to be the next big thing in terms of like people being interested in stuff and we're going to see an uptick in Miles Morales. Do you think that they're going to use the the newly acquired Fox properties anytime soon? Honestly, that would be... That's going to take a lot longer to weave in. I don't even know anymore because, to be honest, like, everything that's been going around with uh, the Doctor Strange movie, you know, they want to, like, bring certain people in, they want to do this, they want to do that, they want to hit something with a wiffle ball bat. There's the idea that... My my dream idea would be to incorporate the mutants through that. Introduce them through uh, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, which, by the way, everyone's talking about that movie. The hype for it, getting ready for it. That movie's not coming out till 2022. And it's still a ways away, you know? And I just, I don't see, um, I don't, I personally, I do see something involving the X-Men. Although right now there's rumor and innuendo about, uh, Tom Cruise is apparently going to possibly be Iron Man in the movie because it's the multiverse of madness. And if you remember, he was originally, he did screen tests, he did this, he did that to play Iron Man. And if you also remember, if I remember correctly, his ver- or the version in the Ultimate Universe is based on him. It's either based on him or Johnny Depp. And personally, I would go with Johnny Depp for uh, that. Yeah, and isn't his AI named Elrond as opposed to Jarvis? It might be. After Elrond Hubbard. Oh, Jesus That's amazing. Christ, I just got the joke. Wow. 
I like how you know Zelda too. Like, oh yeah, that could totally be it. Yeah, 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 Jeremy. Uh, oh, Jeremy, Jeremy, Jeremy. See, it's not Eddie, Eddie, Eddie today. It's now it's Jeremy, 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 which takes longer to say. But yeah, I've got Dianetics of the mouth. <laughs> Someone exploded a volcano and got into my shampoo. I think it's a little hard to predict what's going to be the next big cult, pop culture thing because who knows? You know, I read that uh, they're back to work on the new Batman movie um, after a COVID shutdown. Uh, so maybe there's a possibility that, you know, you're going to see a lot more. You know, Atlanta had been recently become, you know, in the last decade, a big hub, you know, kind of like Hollywood East. So maybe we'll start to see production moving outside the country um, and things will start rolling again. I just, you know, somebody who's a fan of pop culture and kind of reads up on this stuff, it's kind of just really hard to nail down what's going to be next when we don't know what's even going to be next you know, as far as society goes. And I'm not talking about this apocalyptic, you know, type of thing. I'm talking about, um, you know, we don't even really know where we're going to be in 2021, you know, as far as what we can do and where we can go. So I'm not quite sure what's going to be next when it comes to entertainment. And that's... I will say this, though. um, For everybody who's ever said, you know, actors aren't important people or writers or all these people... You know, we need to trump up all these people on, you know, that are common working folk. Absolutely we do. But where would we be right now as a society without streaming services and video games and, you know, um, entertainment to kind of keep us a little bit sane in, in some crazy times? So I'm not trying to oversell people who do entertainment as being overly important, but I think it's pretty hard to dismiss the value to what artists bring to society when it's really kind of kept us together. Absolutely. I I, kind of want to just add to that because I think that's that's pretty important. Uh, Something I've seen and noticed is that during this time where everyone is kind of uh, on hold, I've been seeing a lot more people kind of throw their hat into the ring with projects and with art and uh, collaborations. And I don't know if you guys have noticed it. Maybe it's because I'm I'm having a Kickstarter, but I've noticed a huge surge in, uh, you know, original comics, uh, indie comics, a lot of different projects that are just kind of bubbling to the surface and, and kind of blowing up. Uh, and, and I think that's kind of interesting, at least in this time when everything's really uncertain, that you see a lot of people actually kind of going into those fields or, or giving it a shot because, you know, why not? What else do you have to lose, you know? It's a very, again, it's a very interesting time. And who would have thought that a pandemic would cause people to become much more creative than they ever were. Like I never would have, I never would have imagined it, but again, here we are. Oh, I was, I was saying that that it's kind of thrown a wrench into everyone's daily cycle, you know, by not being able to just like go to work and keep your head down. And I think with people having more time on their hands, they're much more willing to kind of explore that space. You know, maybe it's a little bit of boredom, just in general, and that was something I was going to say about the Kickstarter. It seems like people, because these movies are on hold, because like even comics were on hold for a little bit, people have been craving new content. And even just to tie it to the previous topic, I think that that's probably what's going to be next. We're probably going to see something come out of this time period that wasn't already established, but was born from, you know, everyone waiting. The the no, uh, can, oh, go ahead. I, I, I completely agree. I think that uh, 
fan and and you know regular self-produced content is going to you know we're already seeing it with TikTok you know whatever the outcome of TikTok ends up being I'm not on it um, but I know that it's it's a big source of entertainment for people it bleeds into my other social media feeds um, to your point you know uh, Kickstarter and and more. I don't want to say fan-created stuff. I want to say, like, independently created things. I think that you're going to see some things pop out of there that get optioned at some point to be, you know, major studio releases. And I think the other aspect to what you're saying, and including boredom, is that we've seen such a crossover between people wanting to escape uh, and sports. And sports, by all means, should be uh, a place where people also express their political opinions. Um, because the majority of people in sports tend to be minorities. And, um, but I think for a lot of people, they're, they're tired of hearing everything. You know, they're, they're supportive of causes, but they want that space where they can just go and be away and go into their head and, and escape the world for a little while. And to your point, a lot of that's coming from their own head now, because there's, we're going to start seeing, you know, diminishing streaming series and, and, more things getting released on a weekly basis because there's not so much stuff in the can. So I think you're right. Between those things and and creator-driven um, content, I think the next thing very well could be coming out of Kickstarter and TikTok and all these kind of fan-driven venues. All right, Sally and Paluska Falls, you're next on Larry King. <laughs> but I, it, it's a very... Uh, it's hard to say because, like, I feel with a lot of what's going on, we are in for a modern renaissance in terms of uh, content. And I'm excited to see where we go from here because we are going to be getting a lot of new voices that we never would have expected. You know, it's that new opportunity. And the unfortunate thing is, like, we've lost a lot of things, like, you know, live performances, conventions, and stuff like that. I miss going to concerts. But now you see, like, for example, a friend of the show, Max Bemis, of the band Say Anything. He ended up doing a live performance for, I think, uh, BrooklynVegan.com or something. And through that, you know, it was him record doing a live show at home, and you paid, you know, X amount to be able to watch this live web stream. And... It's it's just it's a wild time to see this, and it's again it's all about reinvention. We're getting so much stuff, and I'm also I've, I think I've said it on a previous episode, and I've also said it on Twitter. But the one thing I'm dreading, everyone is making jokes like, "Oh, there's gonna be so many quarantine-based horror movies coming out." You know what? Oh, yeah. Well, you know what I'm really dreading quarantine-based rom-coms. I'm really dreading that because they've kind oh, a little, of... A little mask-for-mask mask action? It's kind of that. <laughs> and, like, they, they're doing dating... They call it Dating During Rona or something like that. It's like some documentary series, and I'm like, oh, this is... Oh, this is shitty. But it's also, like... <laughs> Where they literally take your breath away? Ooh. Not bad. Not bad. Mm-hmm. And it'll it'll work. It'll be watched, and yeah, for the time that we're in. Wait, are you defending that joke? <laughs> uh, I'm not poo-pooing it. That is true. <laughs> but 
I think one of the other things that's come about in recent times now that everybody's talking about all these things is the rise and the continued on a proliferation possibly of the podcast itself. Yeah. And how more of a role it's been a, a go to, an outlet, that kind of thing. And what's on my mind too is that the day after this recording, September thirtieth, is and I don't know what year it started, International Podcast Day. So we're kind of on the money with the day of we're doing this. So just in recognition that we all contribute to that in our own little ways and try to continue to do it in a, of course, upbeat and positive way. Huzzah. Huzzah! And so forth. That's a renaissance thing. I miss rent fairs. Uh-huh. In medieval times. And next is the uh, Halloween attractions, yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, Halloween's going to be Well, fun. with the plague, we're practically in medieval times. Oh. Oof. And I've seen dorks running around wearing plague, ma- plague doctor masks. I'm like, you know what, guys? Could could you not? You look like the one guy in the Dover Boys cartoon. That's an oddly specific reference that not many people are probably going to get. But. That's right. So nomads, Ryan Blue Tavares. right over my head. Yeah, you're fine. <laughs> Let's get but, the info again from Ryan on nomads and the, the Kickstart and all that, what's coming out. Yeah, so you can find more about the Kickstarter at TavaresArt.com. And I'm also doing a, a lot of posts and sharing behind the scenes on my Instagram at TavaresArt. All righty. Now, before we go, also, gentlemen, thank you once again for doing this program. Jeremy, your uh, 789th time participant on the podcast. How can people get a hold of you on them, our social medias? Well, I appreciate it, fellas. At this point, my podcast cherry is now a tumor. You can get a hold of me on Twitter at Bagley. Gentlemen, thank you for doing the show today. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. For The Marvelists, I'm Peter Melnick. And I'm Ryan Tavares. And I'm Jeremy Bagley. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Excelsior! Obsessed with Marvel, with our guests, Ryan and Jeremy. All right, gentlemen, here we go. And me! Hey! You're not a guest. You're you're a uh, constant... Aw, shucks, Eddie. Question number 1,217 reads, Who deprived most of Earth's mutants of their superpowers? Was it Bastion, the Sentinels, the Scarlet Witch, or the Stranger? Nope. This is House of M. C! C! Ryan says C. Peter says Scarlet Witch. Scarlet Witch. I'm sorry, Jeremy said. And Ryan, you also? Scarlet Witch. Letter C. Is correct. And it's a sol- that is a solid mini series, by the way. That I, you know, does not get enough props as it should. You know. That's All right. About it. <laughs> I didn't want to leave you hanging. Yeah. yeah. There's like dead silence. I'm like, wow. Oh, well, thanks, guys. Thanks for covering. So I get to the next question. One thousand one seventy four. This is a couple of little paragraphs here. Oh yay! I by far. The most popular of the X-Men is the man known as Logan alias Wolverine, the short but deadly Canadian mutant who has starred in many of his own comic book series. And you wouldn't want to smell his farts. It's not what it says. His mutant (laughs) powers include retractable bone claws that emerge from the backs of his hands, acute animal-like senses, and the ability to heal quickly and completely from virtually any injury. The healing ability combined with the unbreakable adamantium that has been bonded to his skeleton makes Wolverine virtually... Unkillable. Len Wein wrote and Herb Trimpey drew the story in which Wolverine debuted in The Incredible Hulk 180 to 182. 
Chris Claremont, Dave Cockrum, and John Byrne further developed the character in The Uncanny X-Men. It was in the first Wolverine Limited series, 1982, that Claremont and Frank Miller truly defined the character's personality, a man who continually and heroically struggles to tame the beast within and his capacity for animalistic rage and violence, a quest in which he will never fully succeed. The question, who wrote and drew the Weapon X story showing how Wolverine was infused with adamantium? Barry Windsor Smith. That is one of the choices. It sure is, Eddie. All by itself. The also o- the correct choice. The others, it's also a letter C, like the last question. Hmm. Things that make you go. CNC Music Factory. The other choices are Paul Jenkins and Adam Kubert, Chris Claremont and John Byrne, or Chris Claremont and Frank Miller. But, as previously mentioned, letter C is Barry Windsor Smith. Are we in agreement? I, I like it. Yeah. Barry Windsor Smith is, uh, is correct. they say he's got a cheese face because you could, it's great. Oh. Wait, what is it? Grated cheese. Oh, Jesus. Letter C. It is correct. C for correct. I like that. And in it's Sesame so Street, large. C is for cookie. Mm. That's good enough for me. That's right. Cookie, cookie, cookie. Starts with C. Two for two? How can this be? No, C. Four, three, two, one. Blast off and so forth and Happy New Year. Four, three, eight. There we are. That's terrible. What happened when the crime boss Silvermane learned the ancient formula for regaining one's youth? Is it? the formula. He seemingly... He turned orange. He... He seemingly vanished into oblivion, then returned. He devolved into a baby and then into nothingness. He immediately became 40 years younger, or Silvermane lost the formula before he could use it himself. I'll read that again if you like. Okay. What happened when the crime boss Silvermane learned the ancient formula for regaining one's youth? He seemingly vanished into oblivion, then returned. He devolved into a baby and then into nothingness. He immediately became 40 years younger. Silvermane lost the formula before he could use it himself. I'm going to go B. Devolved into a baby and then nothingness? I feel like B. Yeah, B be for baby. B for baby. Okay, that was right. Uh, Jeremy? Um, sure. Okay. I like watching babies disappear. I... Uh... Big, big Lindbergh fan. Yeah, I R slash child free. I don't know. I don't think it's letter D. He lost the formula because that would, I don't know. I don't know that that would actually make sense. But, Peter? I'm going to go with the baby. You're going with the baby? The baby. I'll just go along with the crowd. Letter B. No. And my oh. my senses were, were right. He seemingly vanished into oblivion, then returned. That was the answer. Oh, shoot. All right, Dan. I hope it was the poetic justice sort of thing. You're. <laughs> that would have been three for three, but two for three. Here we are. 1810. Let's go to that year. I mean, that question number. Boo. Fine. Jeremy's okay, but me? Am I? Who was not a member of the Pantheon? Who's not a member of the Pantheon? Paris. Eddie Wilson. Yet that is true. Not listed here, but that would be letter. Ding, 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 ding. That would be letter E for Eddie Wilson. Is it Paris? Is it Orestes, Prometheus, or Ulysses, who was not a member of the Pantheon? Hercules. Paris. Hmm. Orestes, Prometheus, or Ulysses. What are these? I went to a club one time, and there was someone dancing there named Paris, so I don't think it's that one. I agree. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to say A. 
I don't think Paris. I'm going to go with C because also we had better luck with C, but also because that naming. All right, wait. What? What? What's uh, Hippop- hypotheses? What is his name? Orestes, <laughs> Prometheus, Ulysses. I'm going to go with B. You're going with Orestes. I'm going with B because of the rhyming. Shit. Or is it Orestes? I don't care. O R E S T E S. Tell me what it means to me. Yes, I get it. Respect. I got Orestes at the Parthenon one time. Was it a misdemeanor? Uh, Ryan, were you in there somewhere? I'm sorry. You went with. Yeah, I said A. I'm going to pass on You Paris. went with Paris. Okay. These answers are every, are everywhere. I don't know who said what actually anymore. But uh, you know what? I'll yes, go he's with on thir- 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 first base. Oh, I don't know. I'm going to say Paris myself. No, and the answer is B. Oh, what a shock! It was Peter's answer. It's Peter's answer. Wow. <laughs> it sounded too Greek. We're we're two for four. I don't know. Do we press on? Nails. Yes. Oof. We got to end on a high note. <laughs> yeah, we got to get one more. And I have been playing. All right. I have been playing SingStar. Three for five. Come we, on. We asked for this one, I suppose, and it says two hundred sixty. What is Ben Grimm's connection to the Yancey Street Gang? We did this question too. I remember this one. Well, then we should. That's have where no- he gets his rocks off. We. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> what a revolting development this is! All right. In his youth, he led a rival gang. In his youth, he was robbed by the Yancey Street Gang. He was once a policeman who arrested the Yancey Street Gang, or in his youth, he was the head of the Yancey Street Gang. Wasn't it the last one because it gets the sense of poetic justice or something? He's he's in the Yancey Street Gang, I think gang, it's me, because right? it, it, Old Blue Eyes. Yeah, I think he was the leader of the Yancey Street Gang or something. You're thinking of Frank Sinatra, Old Blue Eyes. If you want to talk about the ever, <laughs> ever-loving blue-eyed thing, now there you go. Point of clarification. I think it was Don Henley. Okay, so... Oh, no, he was head, head of the Yancey Street Gang. Okay, that's letter D, and you're there with that one, Peter? Okay, yes. Poetic Justice, it's like the second, third mention I'm of that. In. I'm buying it on D. You're going on D, I may as well go on D. And there we are, three out of five. D for done. Done. Dun, dun. <laughs> Gentlemen, good night, and good luck. Don't steal my line. You can get it, you can get it, you can get it. And I know just, know just, know.